morning. Hello again. I feel like I've already been talking a lot. Open your Bibles with me, please, this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to continue in our series on the gifts slash charismata of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm sorry. The kids are excused. I'm sorry. I'll take the full blame for it, even though it was Matt's fault. Oh, I figured I might get sponsored. (laughs) Hashtag Yeti. (laughs) I want to read uh, the first eight verses this morning of 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm going to zero in on the last last verse. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. Uninformed, it says in the ESV, ignorant in other translations, ESV was being kind. Yes, where you are, that's correct. (laughs) Verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service or ministry, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each, underline that in your Bibles, the word each, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Father, today we bow our hearts before you in humility and with hunger in them, seeking to know and understand in our day these words, what they mean, how they would impact us. We are disciples. We are learners. We come to be taught of you, Holy Spirit. We thank you this morning for this church. We thank you for faithful men and women, young men and women, who have a heart to know you and live for you. Lord, we thank you that your word is true, and we submit to it today. In Father, in the name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. Amen. I want to say to you uh, this morning that uh, I told Matt this, that as I prepared to teach this morning, um, when he had asked me to teach this text, and it's verse 8, and it is this one sentence, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. I'm going to look today at the gifts of the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. When I thought about that, I thought, I have taught on this so many times. And I want to just tell you not to toot my own horn, but I, I actually traveled around the world for a number of years teaching on these things in Asia, South Africa, Europe. I've traveled all over, and the Lord has been, His kindness allowed me to minister to the church around the world. And I taught on this subject, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, many, many, many times in, in those travels, in those conferences, and, and in those churches. And so I thought, gosh, I've taught it so many times. What am I to think? And I, as I prepared this week, I realized that I have changed so much in the many years since I did that. Now, it's been a number of years uh, since I was doing that with Vineyard. Um, I realized I think about this completely differently. So it was exciting to tackle it anew, I guess is what I'm saying. And I feel like God spoke to me or showed me some things today that I'm I'm excited to to zero in on, and I'm hoping that the point of what I want to say today um, is is caught by you. Can I just begin by telling you that I want to ask three questions uh, today, and I want to ask them, and then I want to answer them in our time together. The first question is this, what are these gifts? Or charismata is the Greek word for for the gifts. What are these gifts? 
of an utterance, and that's the word that's used in ESV, an utterance of wisdom and an utterance of knowledge. What are they? The second question I want to ask is this. How do they work? What do they look like at work? How do they work? And that's why I asked Annie today when she used that very familiar phrase, uh, I felt the Lord spoke to me, um, what that was like for her, because I think that's part of this second question. How do they work? And then thirdly, why are they even important for us today? Because I think we can approach these often with a familiarity that uh, causes us Either, as Matt said last week, maybe some of us have come from a church context where we never really believed that these even existed, that they maybe had ceased uh, with the apostolic age. Maybe we came from a church which we were actually born again into that did believe in them but never, ever practiced them or never had really any expectation of anything ever happening according to by the, the work of the Spirit. Or maybe you were in a church where there was... Uh, yes, a theology for it and a belief in them, but even an excess in how they were used or exercised or distributed, in the sense, by the Spirit. And so you've come in with some kind of preconceived perspective. I hope we can lay that aside today as we begin and just allow the Lord to teach us as disciples, as though we're sitting at the feet of Jesus and he's going to teach us today what these things mean and why they're important. That's a question I felt I needed to ask. Why are they even important? Because my past experience of these particular gifts was such that I would honestly say, and I can say this hopefully before the Lord um, in a way that's not wrongly said, my past experience of them would have been, eh, I don't really think they're really that important. I mean, it's like somebody standing in front of the church and saying there's three people here with a headache today, and I want to pray for them. Uh, that, not that that headache isn't the real thing and that those people don't need prayer, but I, at a point you go, it's got to be more than that. And I want to tell you that it is. That may be part of it, and I'm not downplaying the fact that that could take place, and maybe even today, but there's more than that. What are these gifts? How do they work? And why are they important? So let's begin. What are these gifts, charismata, of utterance, of wisdom, and knowledge? First of all, they are all listed here in these next few verses, but maybe these might be the most difficult to define. And the reason is because Paul gives us zero help in understanding them. He gives us no help at all, anywhere. This is the only place we see them listed in any way in the New Testament. But it's really important as we begin to remember what Matt said last Sunday as he was introducing this series. He, he talked to us, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 1 of this chapter, Paul gives us a very clear context from which he is going to speak to the Corinthian church. And Matt addressed this last week, and it's this. He says, Paul, uh, Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And he gave us, Matt gave us a clear definition of the word spiritual gifts, and it is the Greek word pneumatikos. Pneumatikos. And, and this is how Matt defined it, if you put that slide up for me. Matt defined it as that which was produced, listen, by the sole power of God himself, Without natural instrumentation, it is supernatural. Supernatural. Now, that's important. And I want you to know that that word pneumatikos is an adjective. It's not a noun. It's talking about how God does what he does. It's talking about the spiritual dimension and the spiritual reality, both of the world in which we live and us as human beings now, born again by the Spirit of God. That which is produced by the sole power, the word of the utterance of knowledge, the utterance of wisdom, is produced by the sole power of God himself. It is not natural in its instrumentation. It is supernatural. Natural. Now, this is really important in how we understand 
Paul's use of these very familiar words, words, wisdom, and knowledge. Because those words to us are familiar in a cognitive sense. And we will immediately go there in our brains to our familiarity of how we think of those words, that they are cognitive, primarily in what they exist, what they are. But Paul then says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be wrong, he's saying, in your understanding regarding these spiritual realities. So I want to begin by just saying it's important for us to remember that these utterances are solely a work of God, and they have nothing to do with us in their origin, in their origin, origination. They originate in God, and then they are communicated to us by His Spirit, as, and then we become a vessel to speak the utterance of God. But they originate in God, not in our brain. That's why I asked Annie when she was up here, when you said God speaks to you, what does that mean? How does that happen? Is that something that you just think of? Well, it's a combination of factors. But it originates in the heart of God to encourage his church. And of course, we process it with our own brains and our own emotion, our own who we are as people, and then we speak it however we as a person might speak. So it's not like we are automatic speaking. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the origin of it is in God's heart. And then it is communicated by his spirit to us in whatever way he deems necessary to do so. Now, this, this thinking of what I'm trying to communicate regarding the spiritual dimension, the pneumatikos, if you would, is very consistent with another word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians as well, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. He uses the word revelation in, in chapter 14 in verses 6, 26, and 30. He uses the word revelation. Look there with me for a moment. 1 Corinthians 14, 6. He says, now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? And then he says in verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue. And then he says in verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. That word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. It's a familiar word to us. We know that word in English, apocalypse, apocalyptic. It means an appearing, a coming, a manifestation, a revealing, or an unveiling. So it's this unveiling of, of the purposes of the heart of God. The word revelation is speaking of, and it clearly has inference to it being supernatural. The ability to see or understand or know only because God has revealed it to you. That's what that word revelation means. And so I'm using that to say that this thought of the utterance of knowledge and the utterance of wisdom is closely associated with all that Paul is teaching here in 1 Corinthians 12 of the spiritual dimension and the working of God in the church. And so when we think of wisdom and knowledge, don't default to the cognitive understanding that we have as 21st century Americans of what wisdom is and what knowledge is, even as Christians. Because we are, have to see to begin that it is not that. This is something, a wisdom and a knowledge that has originated in the heart of God, not in the human brain. Is that making sense? So to begin, we just try to discern Paul's use of these words to understand what these gifts are and how they work. And the reason I'm driving this point home is it's important to know this because many commentators are concerned that if we teach on this and it's understood improperly, it can undermine the sufficiency of Scripture in our minds, as though somehow we're adding to Scripture. There's a now, it almost sounds like some kind of a Gnosticism of where there's a hidden wisdom 
and a hidden knowledge that can be discovered. That's not what I'm saying. That is not what I'm saying. This is something other than that type of understanding. But, but what God speaks would never contradict his word. It simply will give clarity in a specific, and I'll say this more in a moment, I'll explain it more, in a specific situation that is wisdom from God and knowledge from God that could not be known otherwise. And we'll see examples of this in a moment that will make it much more clear. So they're concerned about this undermining the sufficiency of Scripture in our own hearts and minds. And so often, even men who have a theology of believing in this will limit what they're teaching regarding the word of wisdom and knowledge to the study of the Bible and gaining wisdom from the study of the Bible or the result of preaching or teaching that helps you to gain knowledge. And they actually place the emphasis on the word word rather than on wisdom and knowledge, that it's the word that is supernatural. It's the utterance. Are you following what I'm saying? This is the kind of the thinking, because they are concerned that to put the emphasis on it being of the, on, of the, on the knowledge and on the wisdom, as I said, is undermining somehow the sufficiency of Scripture, which we would say, obviously, we would never want to have happen. But it won't. It doesn't if we understand it properly. I don't think that's what Paul had in mind when he used these words, that it's teaching the word or studying the word to gain wisdom and to gain knowledge. These utterances are something different than wisdom gained from the result of Bible study or something that's different than gained from the result of knowledge spoken by a Bible teacher. They are supernatural utterances given by the Spirit to build up the church or an individual in a given moment. They are given in a moment divinely for the common good. It's amazing. And as I said a moment ago, they are listed nowhere else in Scripture. The word knowledge is found over and over again by Paul in Paul's writings. The word gnosis, the Greek word gnosis, it's found over and over again. The word wisdom is found 15 other times in 1 Corinthians alone. In fact, he introduces the whole thought of human wisdom in the beginning of the book as opposed to the wisdom of God. But only in this verse is it used as divine utterance. Even Ephesians 1, texts like Ephesians 1 that are so beautiful and familiar in Paul's prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ would give to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him are not referring to this utterance that we're studying today. Being a born-again believer, we, are, we have been given the spirit and we are growing in wisdom and we're growing in knowledge of Christ, of the mystery of redemption in Christ. But that's not what this is speaking of in this text. This is something different. This is the only place that we'll see this. It is a supernatural word, a supernatural utterance given divinely in a moment in time for the common good of an individual or the church. It's powerful. It's remarkable. It's beautiful. So how do they work? How do they work? Are there other examples of this in Scripture? I want to begin by saying that we must, first of all, begin, as we often do, looking at the life of Jesus Christ himself. It says in numerous places, and I'm not going to read them, but I'll just give you the references, Matthew 9, 4, Matthew 12, 25, Luke 6, 8, Luke 9, 45, and others as well, but those four are very familiar. It says that Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knowing their thoughts, or it says Jesus knowing their hearts, then responds and speaks to them. Of course, many people would say, well, this is simply attributed to the fact that Jesus was divine. Of course, he would know their thoughts. Of course, he would know their hearts. And we do know and we do believe that Jesus had two natures. He had a divine nature and a human nature. He was fully God, truly God. He was fully man, truly man in one body. Amazing. The mystery of the incarnation. 
So, of course, we would say, well, as in his divinity, he would know men's thoughts. He would know men's hearts. But it's also true throughout the New Testament, the Gospels, that Jesus subjugated his divine nature to his human nature. And Hebrews speaks of that when it says that in all ways he's been tempted, as have we. He feels he felt everything you and I feel in his human nature. He denied his divine nature, not the reality of it, but the power of it and the right to exercise it when he became a man. Of course, there are things that took place in the life of Jesus that were clearly divine. His birth and his resurrection. And in between, there were other things, walking on water, so on and so on. You go, was that because he was a man who was walking on water that's a man? Or was that because he was God and he was able? And I'm going to be honest with you and tell you, sometimes I don't know, and I don't think it matters. All I do is I bow and worship of this great God. But there were other times when he was clear that, and one of the ones that was to me most striking was John 4, when the woman, the Samaritan woman, comes to him at the well. And they begin to dialogue. And then Jesus says this to her. He says, he says where's your husband? And she says, oh, I don't have a husband. And, and he says, yeah, what you're saying is true. He goes, you had five husbands, and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. And she went, surely you're a prophet. <laughs> well, what was happening there? Jesus was functioning in the word of knowledge. I think. Now you go, well, he did things that we will never be able to do regarding those, that kind of activity. You know why? And I'm going to get more into this in a moment. Because he was filled with the spirit without measure. You and I leak. You and I leak. He never leaked. He was always full of the Spirit to the brim. He never, never grieved the Spirit. He never sinned. Ever. And so everything he did, that's amazing, as a man was under the full unction without measure of the Holy Spirit. So obviously he was functioning in a capacity as a spiritual man Beyond what you and I will. But he still functioned as a man. So Jesus, we can see there are examples of Jesus uh, having that activity, that happening in his life. But there are also many examples of the apostles having the same types of interactions with people, same experiences. I'm, I'm going to read a few of them, but I want to just tell you of two to begin with that you're familiar with. The first would be in Acts 3. It says that Peter and John are walking toward the temple, and they walk past the gate, and there sitting was a lame man who had been lame from birth, and we know that he had been sitting there probably for years begging. So that means that Peter had walked past him numerous times. But this time it says in Acts 3 that he directs his gaze upon him and then begins to speak to him faith to be healed. What was the impetus, I asked myself, for Peter to speak to him at that moment in time after all the times he had walked past him? It was something like what Annie described a moment ago. It had a sense the Holy Spirit was, was saying something to him for this man. And then he probably dialed in as he directed his gaze, and this is something that we can teach. When you begin to hear the Holy Spirit, you sense, you have a sense it's the Spirit, and you can tune in, in a sense, to what he is saying if you learn to discern his voice. And he directed his gaze, and the Lord was speaking to him, and then he spoke in faith what he believed God had for that man in that divinely inspired moment. And we know what happened. The man was healed. Why did Peter have such faith to speak healing the way he did? Was it by revelation of the Spirit that he gained a knowledge into God's plan for that moment, for that man? What a beautiful thing. Acts chapter 5. Peter knew the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira. When they came to him and they lied 
about how much they had sold their land for and pretended they have given it all and they kept back some of it for themselves. Peter looked at them and he knew. And he knew that they had lied and he said, you could have kept back as much as you wanted. It was yours to do with. Why did you lie? And he said this to the Holy Spirit. And then he pronounced to them the judgment and I, I laughed to myself this week as I was reading this. I thought, their death was for the common good of the whole church. Sad for them, probably sad for their family and their children, obviously, but it was for the common good because the church was young and the Lord was jealous that this church would begin without that in its midst. And so God said, I'm not going to allow this. And he dealt with it right there on the spot. How did Peter hear that? How did he know the word of knowledge. He knew that God wanted to remove this obstacle to the church's growth. Acts 13, 6. Let's turn there and look at it for a moment. Acts 13. This is an interesting story. Paul and Barnabas have just been sent out. Hands were laid on them. They were sent out of Antioch to go under ministry. They're just now beginning to just their first, first stop, their very first stop. They sailed to Cyprus and they arrived in Salamis. They began to preach the word in the synagogues. And in verse 6 of Acts 13, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a magician. It was a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. And he was with a very influential man, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, who was a man, I love this, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also Paul, now listen to this, filled with the Holy Spirit, underline that in your Bibles, underline it, highlight it, circle it, filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm going to come back to it in a moment, looked intently at him. I love this. It's like Peter's directing his gaze in Acts 3. Same thing, looked intently at him and then said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop from making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time, and immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For, for he was scared out of his wits. No, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. How did Paul know? How did Paul know? He knew what was in his heart, and he spoke it out loud. He knew what God wanted to do in that moment. He said it what it was. How did he know this? By revelation and by supernatural knowledge of both, listen, the enemy's plan and God's plan. That's important. By supernatural knowledge, he knew the enemy's plan and he knew God's plan. Can I say it one more time? By supernatural knowledge, he knew both the enemy's plan and God's plan. That is important. It's important in our day but he knew it by supernatural knowledge. And then he knew that he had the authority, which is another whole subject altogether, to deal with it. But the pronouncing of the blindness, I don't believe it was Paul's doing it. It's God's authority, and Paul knew what was happening, and he simply, as the vessel, said it. I think the guy would have been blinded even if Paul hadn't said it. Because God wanted the proconsul to believe. And this guy was a hindrance and he needed to get out of the way. There's another story in Acts 14, verses 8 through 10, of a crippled man who needs to be healed. And I won't read the story right now, but you can, you're familiar with it. But verse 9 of Acts 14 says this, Paul looking intently at him. There we have it again. Directed his gaze, Acts 3. Looked intently, Acts 14, 13, and here we are in Acts 14. Again, Paul looking intently at him. 
And in looking intently at him, Paul saw that he had faith to be healed, and he spoke to him then to stand as he did, and he was healed. I may ask you the question, how did Paul see his faith? It was a guy going, ooh, 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 I have faith. Oh, hey, look at me, I have faith. Did he have a T-shirt on that says, I have faith? No, Paul discerned it by word of knowledge, by revelation. He looked at him, he looked intently at him. It's interesting, this isn't casual, guys. We're not talking about casually strolling through life. Casually just going about, you know, blah, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. No, we're talking about men and women who are filled with the Spirit, who are dialed in to God. And they're hearing stuff. And they're seeing stuff. And they're doing stuff. They're doing things that need to be done for the common good in that moment. How did Paul see his faith? How did he know God would heal him? By the Holy Spirit's insight. And then he spoke a word, listen, from that knowledge. He spoke a word. Acts 27, let's turn there. This is my last example in Acts. This one was amazing as I began to think about this. Because I thought, Lord, okay, these are all words of knowledge. What about a word of wisdom? Lord, is there an example of a word of wisdom in Scripture? Other than Solomon, we're all familiar with Solomon, but I don't think that's helpful for me in, in, in New Testament life. But is there an example? And I mean, it's not that it isn't helpful, it is. But, you know, when he said all the wise things Solomon said, many of them were by a Holy Spirit inspiration. But this is an interesting text, Acts 27. And we know this story. Paul is in this storm at sea on his way to Rome. He's set out from Caesarea in, in, uh, in, in uh, Israel, and now he's on his way to Rome, and he's on this ship. And in verse 9 of chapter 27, it says, Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because over the fast, even the fast was already over, where am I? I just lost my place. Paul advised them, saying, this is interesting, verse 10. Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, I believe that was a word of knowledge. So he's on this ship. Now, of course, it's, you know, there's stuff going on. It wouldn't be hard to discern we're in trouble. But he was a little more specific than that. He was a little more, and he gets even more specific here in a moment. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the, in the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So actually, this first statement was before they even were at sea. Nothing bad was even happening yet. Paul's already hearing. Okay, there's going to be trouble, and there's going to be loss of life, very potentially. And so he says it. So then the storm takes place, verse 13, is blowing. They're run, running under the lee of a small island in Cauda. They manage to secure the ship. After hoisting it up, they used supports to gear and says they were fearing they would run aground. Verse, verse 18, they were violently storm-tossed. They began to jettison cargo. They threw the tackle overboard with their own. They neither the sun nor the stars were, you couldn't even see because of the storm for many days. They were in the middle of a tempest. And all of our hope of being saved was at last abandoned. And then in verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And yet now, listen, this is amazing. I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, he says, before me an angel of the, of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So he had a lot of info which came from an angel. Okay, so that wasn't just revelation that he had. It was also an angel 
speaking to him. But now go down to verse 34. Verse 33, actually. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, and not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves, 276 persons. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And as we know, they went on. And at another point, they wanted to kill him, but they didn't kill him. So everything that God said, in fact, but I believe right there in that one verse, he's using wisdom by the Spirit of God, telling them what they must do, encouraging them in their, to, to stay in a place of, of faith, of believe, trusting, actually trusting him. And what, because he said this, if you read the rest of the story, that's why they didn't kill him. Because the centurion said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, this dude helped us. He helped us, let's not kill him. We might need him. So they didn't kill him because of this word of wisdom that he had that they believed and they received and they accepted Not only did this word save many men's lives on the ship, but it saved ultimately Paul's life as well. I've had God speak to me in many circumstances in my life by his spirit. I, I, I do know when he speaks that it's him usually. I can sense, I can discern it. I know that it's the spirit of God. There's more than one time, many times I've come in, come to Kath and I've said to her, babe, I believe the Lord is showing me this. And it's, sometimes it's way in advance, way in advance. Because I have a sense that God wants me to know this and he wants her to know this because we need to know this, to prepare, to pray. And that's happened more than once. It's happened many times. I've had this functioning in my own life many times when I've prayed for people. As I begin to pray and I'm, I'm looking at them, I'm thinking about what I want God to do for them, and I'm trying to hear what the Holy Spirit might be wanting to say to them. And as I'm looking at them and I'm praying for them, I'm listening at the same time. And I'm listening for a word. I'm listening for something to be said by the Spirit, by revelation, that I believe might unlock their heart or unlock the circumstance they're in. If it's, if it's an area of oppression or an area of bondage, I want to know what the key is to get them free. And the Holy Spirit knows, does he not? And he will tell us. But then you have to have the faith and the boldness to say it. And you can couch it in terms like, I believe God is saying this to me. And it takes you off the hook if you're wrong. Because we are not infallible. We are, we are human beings. And so we do not hear. We're not filled with the Spirit without measure like Jesus. We don't hear perfectly. But when I do sense it's God, I say it with boldness. And I don't always say, I think God is saying, I just speak it. The Lord is saying this to you. Boom. This is what God wants right now. Boom. And I've had that happen many times. I was praying for a young guy in New Zealand. He was a Maori, a native of New Zealand, and he had tremendous bondage in his life, and he wanted to be free. And as I began to pray for him, I felt and I sensed, like what Annie said earlier, I sensed the Lord saying to me, ask him if anyone has ever laid hands on him before. And he, I said, so have you ever had hands laid on you? And he said, some guy traveling through laid hands on me to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I said, well, what happened when he did that? And he said, that's when this started. And then I knew, okay, that guy, what he had working in him was darkness. It wasn't the Spirit of God. And there's a lot of that out there, isn't there? Don't let somebody lay hands on you that you don't know well. I'm telling you that. If you don't know their heart, if you don't know who they are, don't let them lay their hands on you. Be nice and say, no, it's okay, thanks. 
Because there's a lot of stuff going on. There's spiritual stuff out there. And I'm not saying this to frighten anyone. We want to have wisdom. We want to have maturity. So I then knew how to pray for him. And I knew what was happening then. It was a word of knowledge I had to ask him at that moment. And then the Lord gave me the wisdom of how to deal with it by a word as well. I've had many times in my own life where the Lord has given me words for the church as warnings throughout the years. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This might happen. Begin to pray. I can sense something in the spirit, something happening, division. Something is going on. There's something brewing below this. It's the Holy Spirit telling me, giving me wisdom to begin to pray, to have the elders be aware, to begin to pray for it. This is common for us. And I want to ask then this last question, why then is it important for us today? And I want to begin by saying this. The first thing we need to understand is that these are not the byproduct, I already said this, of a casual faith. Please, please go beyond this thing of where we can live any way we want and still expect God to use us. Can I tell you that is not a true statement? That is a lie. You cannot live half-heartedly and in compromise and expect God to use you in any measurable way. Yes, he loves you. And then people say, well, I remember when God used a donkey. I've heard that one so many times. God will even use a donkey. That does not justify the fact that God does not use just perfect vessels. In fact, I think maybe the donkey spoke to Balaam and been full of the Spirit. Is it possible the donkey could have been under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Brothers and sisters, you cannot live a casual Christian life and expect God to use you. And so I would say to us as well, as I emphasized earlier, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want to, as we close, I want to give an opportunity just for the Lord to come and be among us in that way. But a casual Christianity will not cut it for what is needed in our world today. And I really am so thankful because I think God is dealing with it now. I think he's dealing with this casualness in the church. And a lot of what we're experiencing in the world right now is sorting through things. It's separating things and letting things be seen to be as they really are. It's hard. It's not easy. But it's God. God's at work. And why else is this important? And I'm coming in here for the landing. In Matthew 16, when he was speaking to his disciples, Jesus said, this is important. He said to them in Matthew 16, Now I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, the confession of your faith, I will build my church, listen, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Why is this important for us today? This goes back to our previous series on sheer Christianity. The church is the most important entity on the face of the earth today. The most important leaders on the earth today are not presidents or prime ministers. They are leaders in the church. Those are the most important men on the face of the earth today. Because the church is the most important entity on the earth today. It is God's means, as I read out of, out of 1 Corinthians 15, and he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. It's through the church that he is reigning on the earth. Not perfectly, but it is a, a battle. And the church has authority on the earth. And we have been given authority to undermine and usurp the plan of the enemy. The enemy wants to destroy mankind. He wants to destroy as many people as he can. He wants to drive them and, bond and enslave them and keep them in bondage until they die in their sin and live in eternity separated from God. That's all he wants to do. And we are the only thing standing between them and hell. And that's why we must be filled with the Spirit so that God can use us in this battle. If you were in my teaching in Revelation, and I don't have time to go into this. I was going to read it, but we don't have time. 
There are two witnesses in Revelation 11. And I taught this, and I truly believe this. Those two witnesses represent the church throughout the church age. They stand there, and they prophesy, and they speak until they are martyred. And then God raises them. But that's the calling of the church. That's who we are. That's who we are. That's why when Matt says these things, he says, this is not about us. It's, it has nothing to do, it's not making us happy and making us wealthy and making us healthy. And It's not that. It's about the glory of God and the purposes of God. Do you guys believe this? I know you do. But it has to begin to grip our hearts. That's why these gifts are so important. We will need these gifts for what is ahead for us. These are so much more than just a few words on a Sunday about someone having a headache, although it can be that. At that moment, that might be the most important thing that could be said and needs to happen. I'm not undermining and downplaying that. I'm simply saying it is more than that. It is more than that. And maybe a lot of this will happen outside the church, in the world as we relate with people, as we speak to people, as we fix our gaze intently, as we're listening to someone's story over coffee, and we're listening to them, and we're listening to God, and God says, this is what they need to hear right now. This is what they're experiencing. This is why, and this is what you can do to help them by saying and doing this. But if you got up that morning, and the night before you were watching some filthy thing on TV, and you got up that morning, and you simply went to your Facebook page, and then you went to have coffee, you're not going to hear God. You're not. But if we're walking in the Spirit, and we're not perfect, and we all have our weaknesses, and we all have our vulnerabilities, I'm not saying that we, aren't, we have to be. I'm not saying we have to be perfect. But I'm saying we've got to be filled with the Spirit. I had an interaction with God last night. I was going through something. And I just found myself praying. And you know what I began to do? Repent. I repented. And I dialed into things in my life that I don't dial into very often. And I began to just sit. I just began to confess them. Lord, this is, this is who I am. This is, what, this is what's in me. This is, what, this, is, this is part of it. And I began to confess it and repent of it. And I just felt like it was so needed for me to know that I was able to get in touch with those things. And I just began to say, Lord, I want to be filled with your spirit. I want to be filled to overflowing with the spirit of God so that I can be used by you in these days. We have to develop and cultivate our spiritual acumen so that we can discern the voice of the spirit. Would you stand with me, please? I'm sorry, I know I've gone over. Take, let's take a couple of minutes. Close your eyes. Just close your eyes for a minute. Let's just be before the Lord. I want to encourage each one of us today to just be brutally honest and vulnerable before God. That there would be a true repentance in our hearts so that we can be full of God. I truly believe it is God's desire to fill his church to overflowing. And I truly believe that in the day in which we're living, it is a necessity. And I truly believe that God is separating the wheat from the tares and the chaff from the true wheat And I believe that God wants a people that have a distinctiveness to them who love him above all else. Holy Spirit, fill us. Fill us, O God. Even now, Lord, come and fill your church. Bring about a heart, Lord, of repentance. 
Help us not to fear honesty before you. You know our hearts already. You know our lives. We fear our own hearts, Lord. We fear being honest with ourselves. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Release revelation, Lord, to us. Divine revelation utterances, Lord, of knowledge and of wisdom, of insight. In a moment, Lord, that will set people free, that will heal them, that will save them from certain death. Holy Spirit, fill us, Lord. Fill us today. Come, O God. Thank you, Lord. Cleanse us. Wash us, Lord. Purify us. Heal us. Free us. Free us. Free us. As Annie said, we are free. We want to experience the fullness of that freedom, Lord. Fill us, Lord. Breathe on us afresh, Spirit of God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Go deeper than you've ever gone in us, Lord. Go deeper. Help us to teach our children these things, Lord. Help us to be able to lay hands on them, Lord, and see them come into maturity in the Spirit of God. Help us, Lord. Heal us. Holy Spirit, fill us. Fill us, Lord. Jesus, we love you. We love you, Lord. We need you. I just encourage you through the day, if you have this sense of God wanting to have you set your heart apart for a few moments to do that and just to go ahead and deal with things very vulnerably before God and let's have the belief that an expectation of being filled walking in the, in the Spirit, walking in the fullness of the Spirit, and, and beginning to see all that God has for us. Amen? Amen. Amen.